Back in the saddle again. Now, if you're under 60, you might not know what that is. That's a song, song by a cowboy named uh, Gene Autry. That song was running through my mind all week long. So here I am. Somebody said to me, don't worry, Kent, it's like riding a bike. And I thought, you don't understand my experience with learning how to ride a bike, let me tell you. Because it's like riding a bike, you're not encouraging words to me. Okay, they're scary. I have a vivid memory of when I was a little kid. Uh, took the training wheels off my bike and we're gonna ride up the sidewalk on my street. And so in front of our house, my dad was behind me and he's pushing me and holding on and encouraging me and then he let go. And I went past the Corelli's house and I went past the Spracus's house and I came kind of wobbly, you know, but making it. I came to the Beck's house. And for some crazy reason, the Beck's had just um, put grass seed in their front yard and the sprinkler was on. And so the front yard was just so soaking wet. And I came to their house and miraculously stopped and fell over into his lawn and left an inverted jello mold of my whole body into his freshly seeded yard. Um, talk about embarrassed. Oh my gosh. I left a lasting impression in his front yard. Okay. Now, I'm not here to impress you, but I do think God wants to leave a lasting impression in your heart and your mind today. I think God wants to show you some things from his word that will um, put a lasting impression on your heart and your mind, especially in terms of how you think and how you feel and how you act. And I know that everyone in this room could use some God help when it comes to how we think and how we feel and how we act. Amen? Amen. Yeah. So. We're going to start by looking at some pretty familiar uh, scriptures, uh, scripture that's often quoted in church. Um, it's in Isaiah 55, so if you have a Bible you want to go there or your phone you want to go there, you can. Um, I want to say this, though. If these verses aren't familiar to you because you're kind of new to this, this church thing, I don't want you to be embarrassed in the least because I think in some ways you might have an advantage Meaning, you don't have to unlearn as much stuff as some of the people who have been a part of church their whole life. Some of us need to rethink some things and relearn some truths. Things that we always thought were right or true that maybe we'll find out today really aren't, okay? And that can be a really, really good thing. The scripture we're going to look at today is in Isaiah chapter 55. And we're going to jump ahead to verse number 8 and read verses 8 through 11. So... Let me give you a little background before I read those, okay? Um, this is God himself through the prophet Isaiah talking to his people, Israel. Now, at this point, they are not in a very good place, okay? They are far from God. There's a lot of disobedience, a lot of rebellion. And into that context, God speaks these words through Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, we're going to come back to verses 10 and 11 at the end, but I want to focus for a minute on verses 8 and 9. If you're familiar with these verses, and maybe you, you grew up in church and you've heard that a lot, and you were probably taught that those verses mean something along these lines. They're talking about God's infinite wisdom compared to us, okay? He's way smarter than you and I are, right? Right. He knows everything. We don't. He knows what's best for us. We don't. There are things about God and his ways that we will never understand this side of heaven. Are all those statements true? I'm sorry. Thank you. They are all true. And I absolutely believe every one of them are true. However, that's not the main point that God is making here through the prophet Isaiah. This, this might surprise you. It really surprised me when I first saw this, and I've been chewing on this for a couple of years now, and it's really doing an amazing work in my heart in terms of my perspective, how I think, feel, and act around some very, very specific things. In order to understand what God's talking about when he says, my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, you need to go back to the beginning of chapter 1. I was talking with Mike Tanyas about this uh, earlier this week, and um, we had a great discussion, didn't we, Mike? Mike? Um, I, you're back there, Mike. I know you are. He made some really good points, and um, I've talked about maybe having him come up here and, and share that. Mike, would you be... Yo, Mike! <laughs> oh, there you are. Now, I did not do that to embarrass him, or to call him out. I did that to get his attention. And it's a great illustration of what this very scripture starts with. What, what I see Isaiah saving, saying, what God's saying through Isaiah, is the same thing that we see in the New Testament when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. When, when I was the pastor here, if you remember, if you were here, those words, verily, verily, or truly, truly, in essence means, hey, this is really important. Pay attention. And this verse starts with the word, ho, yo. It's only used three times in the Old Testament, and it's always for that reason. God's saying, what I'm about to say is really important, and you need to pay attention. So here we go. Don't miss this. Ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Let's stop there for a minute. If you're paying attention, you have to ask yourself a question. Wait a minute. How do you buy stuff without any money? Uh, it, it doesn't say, hey, 0% down and no payments until the first of next year. It says you can come buy stuff without any money. No cost, period, nothing. What does that mean? What's God saying here? Why is he saying, ho, pay attention to this. I want you to understand this. You can come buy stuff from me without any money. 
You see, this is an invitation from God himself, from the heart of a great loving father to receive grace and mercy. You see, to buy something without any money is a picture of, of grace and mercy. We're to come to him to receive that grace and mercy that only he, he can give. And he gives it freely. It's without any cost. And it's something that we so desperately need. When it talks about wine and bread, it's talking about the staples of life. And we desperately are a people who need God's grace and mercy, aren't we? We are. I know we are. You see, God gave them the law, Exodus through Deuteronomy, as a set of moral guidelines and, and regulations to follow and obey so their relationship with God would flourish and, and be healthy and uh, that they and other people would be well and be blessed. Obedience is a real key to blessing. I know that. But, but God never expected them or us to be able to obey in our own effort and in our own strength. That's why there was the sacrificial system. It was a picture of the coming Messiah, the Lamb of God, that uh, there were sacrifices for sins, not as a punishment to you, but as a payment for sin and its devastating consequences. Well, by the time Isaiah writes this, it's like 500-ish years later, after the giving of the law. And the people had turned the law by that time into an enormous burden. They added so many other rules and stipulations and regulations, and they assumed that God expected them to follow all these rules and regulations in their own strength. Why? So they could please him and earn his approval and his love and his favor. That is so wrong. That's such a faulty picture of God and who he is. And yet I venture to say every person in this room to some degree wrestles with those very kinds of things. If you think it's up to you to, to prove your love to God and earn his approval and his love and his acceptance, you are going to spend your whole life being frustrated, hopeless, in despair, and defeated. Because it doesn't work that way. It's never intended to work that way. Isaiah goes on to say, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? He's talking about works there. Works aren't the answer. You can't earn God's approval and love and acceptance. Self-effort to obey and earn that love and acceptance as approval is a gift. Come buy this without any money. It's not something we're called to earn. Listen carefully to me. You see, listen carefully. It's kind of like, ho! Oh! God reiterates the fact that you probably don't get this. You have some wrong and faulty assumptions about me. And I want you to understand, that's not who I am. That's not how I see you. That's not how I feel about you. And that's not what I expect of you. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. You see, God in Isaiah is calling them to abundant life. Anybody else ever do that for you and me? Jesus, John 10.10. 10. He came that we might have this abundant life. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. You see, God is saying in essence... You need to pay attention and really understand who I am 
and how I think about you, how I feel about you, what I expect of you, etc., etc. Now, I want to say something that I, I don't think is controversial at all, but I think it's an incredible truth, and I want you to grab a hold of this. I think one of the most powerful negative consequences of Adam and Eve's sin was a distorted picture of God. And I think even as we talk about through one man sin entered into the world through Adam, I think this is a core issue that we all grapple with because of sin. If you don't believe that, go read the beginning of Genesis and see how they responded to God after they'd sinned. Their, their view of him and feelings and assumptions about him are so screwed up at that point. And church, I think we all battle that to some degree. And I think we'll expand on that a little bit today. You see, what God is saying here is, I, I want your lives to be filled with my goodness, with my grace. I want you to have this abundance that I promised you. God's not just talking there when he talks about blessing and abundance, just about physical, material prosperity. That, that can be a part of it. But God wants to do a work in our souls, our minds, our wills, our emotions, to get us to where he wants us to be so we're experiencing the life that he desires to give us. And if you're thinking about God is messed up and distorted, you're going to miss out. We're all going to miss out. God makes this offer to them, but he's also making it to us. It's, it's him saying, you know, my heart for you, my greatest desire for you, my perfect will for you is that you believe and receive this free gift of grace and mercy that I want to give you. I offer it to you in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, his death, resurrection, a burial and resurrection, and I offer it to you through the indwelling Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you. You see, that's the key to walking in this everlasting covenant that he made with David that he's talking about here. It's not about earning and deserving God's grace and mercy. Kent, you've said that 14 times so far. I'm going to keep saying it because it's one of those places that we have some skewed perspective. You know what grace means? Grace means you get what you don't deserve. You know what mercy means? You don't get what you do deserve. Does that make you grateful for grace and mercy? It sure does me. I'm telling you. You see, God wants us to do more than just, oh, yes, I believe that, Kent, as if I'm giving mental assent to what you just said. God wants us to experience the reality of that truth because it can change our very lives. We all need that. I know we do. I'm not going to ask you. Raise your hand if you need more because I know you need more because I need more. So I'm going to talk about that in the next few minutes. In verse number 6 of Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Without a whole lot of comment on all this, another way of God saying, Come, seek me. Call upon me. I'm near. And I want to give you firsthand revelation of this truth about who I am and who you are. And that my grace and mercy is available to you. No matter what your condition is in the moment. I don't care if you're living right or living wrong. If things are good or things are bad. I want to extend compassion and mercy and forgiveness to you. You see, those... Those seven verses, the, the lead-in in Isaiah 55, is the context 
for verses 8 and 9. As God goes, yo, pay attention. This is important. You probably don't think this way, but you need to. Out of those first seven verses is the context for my thoughts aren't your thoughts. In other words, you see me all wrong. You have ideas about me that aren't true. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I've paraphrased this, okay? Kind of in an amplified version. I'm going to read this so I don't miss anything. But this is what this, this, these two little verses are saying to us. Even though you are mine, you don't see me as I really am. You don't think like I do, especially with regards to how I see you, what I feel towards you, and what I expect from you. You think it's about working hard, striving to please me in order to earn my love, my acceptance, my forgiveness. No, that's already yours in Jesus and what he's done for you. Believe and receive my grace and mercy. Let it have its way in you so that it can do its powerful work within you and work from the inside out to change you. When I talk about God's desire for us to receive, to believe, to embrace his grace in our lives so that this abundant life can truly be our experience, there are two kinds of grace the Bible talks about. The first one we're really familiar with, that's saving grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what Jesus did on the cross, okay? He paid the price for your sin, for my sin. He came to restore us back to relationship with God, to give us eternal life, and to give rebirth to our spirit man, okay? That's amazing grace, is it not? Man, that's amazing grace. I grew up in a church that was incredibly legalistic, okay? Really, really legalistic, very works-oriented. And yet the irony to me was my pastor preached almost every week about the fact that we were sinners and Jesus was our Savior, but he was so strong on you are saved by grace through faith. It's not about works. But this was the hook, and I... I've come to realize how deeply it impacted me. You were saved by grace, absolutely 100%. But once you were saved, all the rules changed. And now God expected you to be a good little boy or girl. It was on you, it was on me to start behaving like I was supposed to. To hear all about all the do's and don'ts in scripture and to make sure I was doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. It was such a strong message of, Kent, you're saved by grace, but now you, you better obey. And when I didn't, man, I was just absolutely overwhelmed with guilt and condemnation and shame. I, I heard things like, you know, God really loves you, but he'd love you more if you were a little more obedient. I even had a grandma, Grandma Hummel, who would say, when I'd fall off my bike, Jesus punished you. Isn't it amazing I'm not more screwed up than I am? <laughs> Can you imagine living under that? And it's been a process of undoing some of those faulty things I believed about God for a very long time, very long time. 
See, the second type of grace was something I knew almost nothing about. This kind of grace that the Bible talks about, I call empowering grace. Different from saving grace. It's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, the Lord, of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see how that verse says that it's his divine power that works in you and me to bring about a life of godliness. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Spirit within us and our yielding to that power in us to live the life we're supposed to live. It's his divine power through the Holy Spirit that gives us what we need to live obedient lives, godly lives, pure lives. Titus 2 says the same thing in different words. Starting at verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, that's saving grace, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, I would hear that all the time. I need to deny ungodliness. I need to deny worldly desires. I need to live sensibly and righteously and godly. But we never talked about verse 14. This God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Does that say it's up to me to be godly? No. It says it's Jesus' work in me to make me that way. This instructing us doesn't mean just telling us and giving us a, a little, little lesson on a whiteboard and we memorize all the points. This is talking about something beyond just intellectual knowledge. It's talking about an experiential thing and that it's Jesus' work and he wants us to experience this life of godliness and righteousness through his power. That's the only way this works. And you see, the key in this is the words in us. The first time I ever saw this, I was again blown away. In Galatians, Paul writes about his uh, road to Damascus encounter with Jesus. You remember he was going and riding a donkey to Damascus to go persecute the church. And he has this encounter with Christ. And Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he has this revelation of the Lord. In Galatians 1, he talks about that. And he says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son. What does it say? Say it. In me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Again, for some of you, because it was for me, this is a, a paradigm shift. I always thought of that encounter, you know, Jesus is out here and he's talking to Saul, Paul, about what he'd done. And I felt like it was always a real, this Jesus on the outside talking to Paul about what he needed to do, emphasis on what Paul needed to do. But what it says so clearly his here is, this wasn't, when Jesus revealed himself to me, it was a revelation of the fact that Jesus by the Holy Spirit was in me, in him. And it makes all the difference in the world in terms of the source of how you live this Christian life. 
in me takes on such a deeper meaning. Galatians 2.20 says it's kind of the same thing. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives, say it, in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I'm still alive. It's still me living. But it's Jesus living in me by his Holy Spirit who empowers me to live this life of obedience and faithfulness and fulfillment and victory and abundance and all those great things. You see, you need to see the grace of God like a bank vault that is filled with precious, immeasurable wealth and riches, okay? A picture of God's grace. Now, you don't have to walk five miles in a blizzard to access that vault. You don't have to have the proper codes and account numbers and pin numbers. You don't have to have fingerprints and retinal scans to access it. You don't have to have the matching key like you do for a safety deposit box. You know why? Because the grace of God is not out there somewhere. Where is it? It's in us. And so it's a matter of believing and receiving what we already have, what God so greatly desires for us to access and understand. It's already in you. But it doesn't do you any good if you don't access it. I have a million dollars. What are you doing with it? I have a million dollars. Well, that's kind of dumb. You have to access it. You have to spend it. You have to tap into it and use it. And God in the Word says he wants to lavish his grace upon us. Sometimes we act like, well, you know, it's, he's got a little eyedropper and he takes out a drop and squirts it on us. Uh-uh. This is like a picture of Niagara Falls and you're standing under it. That's what lavish means. It's not going to beat you against the rocks and kill you. But it's that powerful and that enormous and that accessible and that overwhelming. That's who God wants to be in all of our lives. Here's, here's the last point I want to make about grace before we enter into a kind of a, a guided prayer time together, okay? Not only is this an unlimited supply of God's grace, it's also something that we constantly need. And this, I think, is another one of those paradigm shifts in some of your thinking that I hope starts to happen today. And I want to say, this message is not the end all and be all. This is a starting point of some things that you can start regularly doing to renew your mind and get yourself in a better place of really understanding the truth about who God is, who you are, what he expects of you, how he feels about you, all those things, okay? This is a classic mistake. Put the slide up if you would. This is a classic mistake that so many Christians make. On the left-hand side, you see a zero to 100%, and that's a measure of, of Christian character or Christian maturity, okay? Then across the bottom, obviously, it's a, it's a timeline, okay? We have some false assumptions about obedience and godly living and still think in some ways, you know, even the Holy Spirit lives in me. It's, it's still kind of up to me. It's my responsibility to self-improve over time. Let, let me just ask you a couple questions. The day that you became a Christian, in that very moment, how much Christian maturity did you have? Zero. In that same moment, how much of the Holy Spirit did you have? 100%. But you see, while there should be progress in Christian maturity, I think we get that all wrong. 
we kind of think that, well, you know, after a year of being a Christian, I should have been able to become 10% in my Christian maturity in five years, maybe 25%, and 10 years, 50, and 20 years, 70. And, you know, I'm continuing to progress in my Christian maturity. There needs to be progress in our Christian maturity, but it ain't up to you. It's up to you yielding to the Holy Spirit within you. It's up to you having the kind of humble heart that realizes, oh God, I need your grace as much today as I ever did. And I probably realized today that I need it more than I realized how much I needed it 20 years ago. You see, the, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize I've got farther to go than I ever thought I did. And you know, some people will go, well, Kent, that's kind of a negative confession. And I want to say to them, no, it's not. Or if it is, then Paul made the same one. Look at this next slide. Look at, here's Paul's confession. In 1 Corinthians 15, written around AD 55, he called himself the least of the apostles. Well, he's the least of a pretty select group, isn't he? But later on, two to five years later, he calls himself the least of all saints. And then finally, in 1 Timothy 1, way later, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Do you see the digression in personal opinion? That's how it should be. Because Paul, the longer he was a follower of Jesus, understood that the grace of God is always a gift. Always a gift. It's not a negative confession at all. Here, here's the reality about growing as a Christian, okay? And what it takes to do so. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you desire. When it says flesh, it's not talking about all the creepy, evil, horrible sins that you commit. Flesh is just yourself, okay? Your self-centeredness, your selfishness, your, your self-effort to uh, live a good Christian life apart from God's power. I've got news for you. That little chart about Christian maturity, if you see that as your responsibility, you're missing it because the battle against our flesh never goes away. Christian maturity doesn't weaken your flesh, okay? Christian maturity comes as we're more submitted to the empowering grace that lives in us. I don't know who said this, but I think it's so true. Your flesh is like a goat. It's going to eat whatever you put in front of it. So even if you're a Christian for 50 years, if you keep subjecting yourself, and again, not just to lustful thoughts or too much alcohol or drugs or those big sins we think about, it's the same thing if you continue to allow your mind to focus on untruths about God. If you keep putting that in front of you and swallowing it, it's going to impact you, okay? You see, as a mature Christian, Paul wrote Romans 7, I do the thing I don't want to do and I don't do the thing I want to do. That wasn't some pre-Christian experience. That was life. Yet Jesus in me and in you through the Holy Spirit can set us free and give us victory if we'll just practice a few simple things, okay? And they're all about yielding to him and to his power. See, that's the source of true and lasting obedience, a humbleness and a yielding to the power within, not a trying harder and doing better. 
I've been at this for over 50, 60 years, and it ain't worked yet, and it's not going to because it's not designed to work that way. It's not designed to work that way. I think I've given you a lot of good information today and good knowledge, but I, I felt like we're supposed to close with some um, actual application of what we're talking about. So I want to have some guided prayer with you this morning. Um, I don't like formulas, Christian formulas, you know, 10 steps to financial blessing, five ways to have a better marriage, eight steps to holy living. I, I, I don't like those. But I think guidelines are helpful, okay? And so what I want to share with you is not a, a formula. I think rather it's a pathway to something. And my encouragement is that today is the start of something, not, well, took care of all your problems today. I'm going to give you some principles that I'm finding I need to go over these and over these and over these and let them kind of sink in. So I, I want to just share four helps to, to freedom and victory today. Number one, when you think about all this, oh, I forgot a quote that I wanted to share before we go any further. A.W. Tozier, who's a great theologian from days gone by, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I agree with that because I think it shapes just about everything else in our life and our experience as a Christian. Okay, number one, be honest with God. I have scripture listed there. I'm not going to read it, but in Luke 18, it's the story of the Pharisee who stood up and thanked God that he tithed and he was such a wonderful man, blah, 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 blah. And then the other publican, the tax collector who stood up and said, oh, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Remember Jesus said, which one walked away justified, forgiven? It was the publican. It was the tax collector. So I want to just take a minute. If there's, if there's some known sin in your life, I'm just going to ask you right in your place to confess it and repent of it because it's getting in the way. That shame and that guilt and that condemnation will attack you. If there are things from your past that you still can't get over, oh God, I made a bad decision 10 years ago and I'm still living under this. Ugh. Talk to God about that just for a moment. Be honest with him. But I think beyond just known sins, what I'm really trying to dig down into today is if you've listened to this and you've realized, you have the courage to say, you know, God, I, I really have had some warped pictures of you and how you feel about me. I've, I've kind of thought you're mad at me or, you know, it's about me and my performance to get you to love me, whatever that might look like. Let's just take a minute and be honest with God about what's going on, okay? I'll give you a little bit of time. I'm sure I haven't given you enough time to really be as honest as you need to be. But again, I'm encouraging you to take this home and start making this a part of the way you live your life and the way you live out your relationship with God. 
Um, if, especially if you have some of those false assumptions about who he is and how he sees you, how you see him. Be honest. Talk to him about it. And ask him to, to renew you in those areas. One of, one of the two best prayers I ever pray, one of them is, Lord, I just really need to feel your love today. And I know people say, yeah, it's about facts and faith, not feelings. My God's big enough and he's relational enough that if I ask him, Lord, I want to just feel how much you love me today, he answers that prayer. And he'll answer it for you also. Another real honest prayer I pray sometimes is, Lord, I thank you that I have lived a pure life so far today. I haven't gotten angry. I've had no lustful thoughts. I haven't been bitter. But it's 6 a.m. and my alarm just went off. So I'm going to really need a lot of help today. Number two, first one, be honest with God. Number two, be honest with trusted others. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one another, pray that you'll be healed. I'm not talking about, so we're going to get the mic out and everybody's going to come up here and confess their deepest, darkest sins. Oh, that'd be horrible. But I am talking about finding a person or some people in your life that you can be that honest with and have that kind of accountability. Rob Strauss, who was a dear friend of mine who worked here with me for about 10 years, we've been meeting for about 40 years, about once a week, and we hold each other accountable. We ask tough questions. But we also don't just say, hey, so how you been doing? We also encourage each other in these truths that I'm talking about. And it just made such a, such a wonderful difference. Number three, and this is a big one, and a lot of times it's overlooked. Pray for a clean conscience. Pray for a clean conscience. We know that the blood of Jesus forgives our sins, cleanses us from sin, but it also cleanses our conscience, the stuff that haunts us. That thing I did 10 years ago that I, oh man, what a bad, what a bad choice, what a bad mistake. And I still live under that cloud, the stuff we just can't seem to let go of, parts of our past that we're not proud of, okay? But listen to what Hebrews says. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? You can be free of all that guilt that haunts you, that you struggle with, that you're not good enough or your bad choices are going to follow you the rest of your life. You're not doing enough to prove how much you love God. God wants to cleanse that. Hebrews also says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Evil there, the, the Greek word for that is not like we think of evil. It's a word that means being cleansed from something that harasses you or is annoying or troubling. One that causes pain and trouble without positive results. That is the absolute enemy's work in our life, is it not? He's, he's dead set on doing that to us. But Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, can cleanse us from those kind of nagging, haunting, harassing things. There's no condemnation in Christ. And so if you live in that place, you need to understand that's, wait a minute, that's not the truth. Maybe how I feel, but that's not the truth. That's not how God feels about me. The son came to set me free of all that stuff. My sin is as far as the east is from the west in God's eyes. You see, it's important, though, that we learn how to properly confess things. 
this empowering grace is not a license to live and do however we want, whatever we want. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, so there's a good sorrow, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation or wholeness, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow brings conviction, brings confession and repentance, brings a clear conscience, and allows that empowering Holy Spirit to work from the inside out to change us. Lord, I, I want to pray for, first of all, for everyone in this room to have someone or to find someone that they can have that kind of accountability relationship. Somebody that's safe, someone that will ask the hard questions in a loving way, but who will also encourage them in the believing of the truth about who they are in your eyes. I also want to pray for this, this guilty conscience thing, Lord. Uh, it's so hard. So many of us as believers keep that in the dark and we don't want to admit it or deal with it. But there's freedom when we bring it out into the light. And I pray that for everyone in this room. Renew them in that truth. And then the final one is demolish strongholds. In other words, record over the old tapes that you've believed, the lies that you've believed about God and who you are and how he sees you. Renew your mind with the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Some Bibles say strongholds. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Those fortresses, those strongholds are those implanted lies about God. Because it's talking here about destroying speculations. That's ways of thinking, faulty ways of thinking, assumptions, thought patterns that we have about the knowledge of God, who he really is, how he thinks of you, sees you, feels about you, and what he expects of you. We're to take those things captive, and you're to counter those lies with the truth. Well, Ken, I don't, I don't know the Bible well enough to do that. Well, find somebody who does so that when you say, you know, I, I really feel separated from God. Well, let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. That's just one example. But whatever it is you're dealing with, if you can't find the truth in Scripture, ask somebody to help you. That's what we need to do. God's word is powerful. Jeremiah says it's like a hammer that shatters the rock. What a great word picture for demolishing these, these strongholds, these faulty ways of thinking. All right, we're going to come full circle and end with this. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, I told you we'd come back to that. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return me to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Not only do you need to start practicing this renewal, you need to take to heart what I've said to you today because it is the truth of God's word. And I think again, if from the fall, it's something we all wrestle with to some degree. So I'm going to pray for you. If you'd stand, please, I want to pray, and then we'll dismiss you in just a second. Father, um, I just, I'm thankful for this church, so thankful, and so thankful for everybody who here, who's here today. And I just want to ask that your word and your spirit come in power to demolish these strongholds. Lord, either blow them up or brick by brick tear them down. Give everybody in this room 
a new, fresh revelation of who you are. Give us the courage to understand what sin, original sin, did to us in terms of how we have assumed you think about us and feel about us. Renew us in this truth, God. Give us a hunger for the truth of your word because, Jesus, you said that truth would set us free. And so lead them to the specific truths that they need in your word. Make their time with you rich and, and desirable as they start believing more fully that this is not about their performance. It's, it's not about them being good enough. It's not about them earning or deserving anything. But it's receiving and believing the saving grace of Jesus, the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Bless you all.